did good evening. That was, that was so weak, I couldn't even, I can't even <laughs> ignore that. Good evening. All right, great. And that, that was phony as could be, but it was better than the first one. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 8 is where we find ourselves in our study of Ezekiel, going through the scriptures. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, be sure and flag one of the guys uh, walking up the aisles right now with Bibles. And uh, uh, so you can hear the Word of God, but read it as well. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you uh, tonight. In, we pick things up in verse 13 this evening in chapter 8, but it would take me longer to recap what's going on here uh, to get our bearings than to just simply read through it. And so uh, to, to, uh, uh, it, 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 we'll pick it up in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and read through to verse 13 with a couple of comments. Chapter 8 through 11, is, it's a self-contained uh, cluster uh, subject in in uh, the book uh, of Ezekiel. And uh, as we'll see in a moment in verse 1, uh, Ezekiel is the elders of, of Israel who are in captivity with him in Babylon. They have come to him uh, to seek a word from the Lord uh, concerning the future of, uh, of Jerusalem and the future of Judah. They evidently at this point recognize him to be a prophet, someone who does hear from God, and their concern is for the future of the nation that they've left behind and the people that are left there. And what God is going to tell them and speaks to them in chapters 8 through 11 is through these series of visions that He gives Ezekiel, He reveals to them what they could never otherwise know, that only God could know. And that is what was happening in the secret places in, in Jerusalem and in Judah, in the secret places of the lives uh, of the children of, of Israel. And as God says, uh, let me just, in effect, He says, let me just show you what I see all day every day. And then you tell me whether Jerusalem is ripe for judgment or not. And so He proceeds to give them the revelation. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there, and I looked, and there was the likeness, uh, like the appearance of fire, and the appearance of his waist, uh, and downward fire, and from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness and the color uh, of amber, as he describes of the Lord who gives this vision to him. And he stretched out uh, the, the form of a hand, and he took me by the lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth. And so he's probably sitting before these elders. All of this begins to occur between Ezekiel and God, and as they're watching him, they realize, all right, he is receiving revelation and vision from God, uh, and, uh, uh, but they don't know what's happening until he reports it to them later. So he's lifted up in, in this vision. He's brought, uh, and, and the Lord brought him by visions uh, of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which promotes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. And so here is probably a, a pillar 
or an image to Asherah that sits now in one of the main entrances to the temple complex in Jerusalem. Asherah was essentially the deification of lust, the deification of sex and sexual immorality. Most of the ancient gods in the ancient world were simply the attempts by man to deify the lusts of the flesh in order to legitimize them, to engage in them, and then call it the worship of God. And, and this awful, awful thing has brought, been brought this close to the temple of God. What was involved, the, the awful lewdness, the indescribable lewdness and, and immorality involved in the worship of Asherah would have been a shame for it to be anywhere in the world, anywhere in Jerusalem. And yet they've brought this image uh, right uh, to the entrance of uh, the area of, of the temple. And so he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. And so I lifted my eyes toward the north. And there, north of the altar gate, I'm sorry, was this, uh, this uh, image, uh, 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 was the image of jealousy at the entrance. And furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here? And then notice, to make me go far away from my sanctuary. And what he's going to describe here in the remainder of chapter 8 and then in the remainder of these chapters is that the sins that the children of Israel were committing, uh, again, any, we're in a relationship with God. That is a, a giving and taking uh, as any relationship is. There's another person involved in this relationship. God is involved in this relationship that we have uh, with him. And because of the, the magnitude of the sin, the sheer amount of sin, the depth uh, of the depravity of the sin that they were engaged in, uh, they were uh, making God uncomfortable to be in Jerusalem. Uh, he had set up the, the, uh, the temple it was, and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies, as we've studied already in looking at the Old Testament. It represented His presence. And here God is, by, by the sin, He's being driven, and ultimately by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, and all of it is kind of progressive, He's being driven out of His place. He's being driven out of the temple that was for Him, and, and erected simply to worship Him. Driven out of the city of Jerusalem that He made the capital of Israel, being driven out of Judah altogether. And these are the sins that drive God away and that they were engaged in. And so here's the progression. We see it first. God says what they're doing here is to make me go far away from my sanctuary. And now turn again, and you'll see greater abominations. And he brought me to uh, the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, uh, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are uh, doing there, hidden away uh, 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 in, in secret there in the area of the temple. And so he went in. And again, this is something God saw day and night, all of the time going on. But uh, the, the, the Jews, the elders that were captive in Babylon, uh, they had, still had a very high view of the spiritual integrity of the leadership and the people in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And they're going to find out otherwise. And so he said, I went in and I saw there. Uh, they, uh, every sort of creeping things, abominable beasts, all of the uh, idols of the house of Israel uh, portrayed uh, all around uh, the walls. 
and, and all of this, as we mentioned last time, probably all of the, this was very common in uh, the, the worship of the Egyptian gods. And so they're seeking Egypt to deliver them out of their fix uh, with their problems with Babylon. And so they have now decided we're going to worship the gods of Egypt as well, in addition to the Lord, in order to gain His favor and coming out from under uh, this threat of Babylon, which simple repentance would have removed the threat uh, altogether. But they go back and they worship the gods of Egypt. They've forgotten their history. And the, and the typology would be for a Christian to know the Lord, have loved the Lord, and then at some point, here you have one group that goes back into sexual immorality or makes it a part of their life in secret. Uh, uh, and then here is a group that goes back and begins to worship all of the things that, uh, that, that they once worshipped when they were in Egypt, Egypt being a type uh, of the world. And so, uh, and these things, of course, grieve and, and quench the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They drive Him out in His fullness and in our lives. And so, He sees all of this on the walls, not in some, you know, club on the corner, uh, on the edge of, uh, of town in Jerusalem. This is going on in the temple. It's going on in the temple. This is happening. The worship of these things. And there stood before them, Seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. Sometimes people say, well, this is, this is the, the 70 highest leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, that, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin who is involved here. Uh, it isn't the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin didn't come into existence until later. But it certainly is a precursor. These are very, very... Uh, uh, very uh, high up uh, people in, in, uh, in Judaism here who are engaged in this in secret uh, in, in the area of the temple. And so there they are, and in their midst stood ja, uh, Jaazaniah, uh, the son of Shaphan. Each one had a censer in his hand. So this was representing worship and prayer to these idols, and a thick crowd, uh, cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, the Lord did to Ezekiel, Son of man, have you seen what the elders, not some riffraff or somebody that doesn't know any better, see what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his uh, idols, for they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken us. And again, the idea was what, th there's no use to asking God or seeking God in prayer. He never answers our prayers uh, anyway. He's forsaken us. And the reason God did not answer their prayers for deliverance from Babylon is He'd already told them that He would deliver them if they would simply repent of their sin and turn to Him. It wasn't a matter of, 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 of there. This is the ultimate blame shifting, and that is making themselves a victim uh, related to God in, in all of this. And uh, that somehow uh, God, the reason that they're in the fix they're in is that is God's responsibility. He's forsaken us when God has been speaking through uh, uh, Elijah, uh, rather uh, through Jeremiah for decades, calling them to, to turn from their sin and that God would restore them. And then we come here uh, to verse 13. And he said to me, um, uh, he, he said to me, uh, uh, turn again, and you'll see even greater uh, abominations that they are uh, doing. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate uh, of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, 
women were uh, sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And so he, he goes further into the grounds uh, on, in the temple where the women were allowed. They had a, a secret place. And at the door of the north gate, they're weeping for uh, Tammuz. They ought to have been weeping over the, uh, the, uh, their own sinful condition. Uh, over the condition of, of Jerusalem that would have n never occurred uh, if, if they had simply obeyed God, uh, uh, been weeping for uh, God to, uh, you know, to bring that the people would turn in repentance uh, uh, to God. Uh, but there's none of that going on. They're weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was uh, a Babylonian uh, deity, and uh, the, it was their version of the Babylonian uh, deity, and, uh, and all of these gods kind of got borrowed, they're cross-pollinated, and so uh, Babylon would have a particular god that was the god of a certain something, and then pretty soon the Syrians would pick it up, and then uh, pretty soon you go further down the, the chain, uh, the Greeks would make a god, but it's kind of like, you know, every few years they change the style of ties where, you know, you can't hold on to your old ties because they go out of fashion. They really go out of fashion because they make some little tiny change uh, that dates it to 1963 and you're still wearing that tie. So they would, they would, uh, they would simply appropriate these, these deities, make little changes related to them, and then rename them. And of course, the Romans did that with the gods of the Greeks. They, they incorporated them into uh, their empire, and all they are greater than the Greeks. After all, they're in existence now, and the Greeks are no longer a world-ruling empire at the time of the Roman Empire. And so they'd refashion the god and rename them. But it was basically the worship of the same things. And, and Tammuz was the god of the spring uh, vegetation. And so one of the many, many gods in the ancient world that had to do with the worship of nature. And the belief related to uh, Tammuz was that, uh, the, uh, that he uh, was, uh, because of an agreement that he had made with some ultimate god, that for six months of the year he was able to uh, exist above ground and uh, for six months of the year, he had to go into kind of a Sheol kind of a place, uh, into the center of the earth or into, uh, into the ground. Uh, and, uh, and so the belief was that when the vegetation began to kind of dry up at the, in summer, and, and uh, Ezekiel is making this prophecy at the end of August, and so uh, that, that he died when that vegetation would, grow, would dry up in the summer, and then in the fall and the winter he went down into the earth, and then each year uh, at springtime he was revived by this, this kind of, of worship. And so the land is burnt at this time, in Jerusalem in the same way that it's burned in August uh, here, except for the water that, that we have. And so they're apparently kind of lamenting his annual demise, his disappearance now from being above ground and going into the ground uh, below. Now imagine, uh, again, these are not pagans, and I use the term affectionately. Uh, these are the Jews. These are God's people. I mean, imagine trading the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the true and the living God, for a God uh, that dies every year and, uh, and goes into the earth every year and is dependent upon the prayers of his followers to raise him on an annual basis. Now, you have to have gone crazy. 
uh, to do this, this kind of, of thing. I, I think the, the old saying, as Chuck Smith used to say, you know, when you cease to worship the true and the living God, it really does become amazing what people will then worship as an attempt to replace them, which is no replacement at all. But this is what was going on. And, and, and you notice there in verse 14 uh, that when, he, when he, he saw that, uh, the women there weeping for Tammuz, that he saw it and, and he was dismayed. I think that, I think that what dismayed uh, Ezekiel at seeing this was not, not so much uh, Tammuz and what Tammuz represented, but that the women uh, were engaged in this. And I, I think that it's, it's generally true that, uh, listen, men are numbskulls. You know that, I know that. If we're honest about it at all. Uh, but within a culture, or within a religious system, uh, once the women are lost, uh, the men, just knuckleheads, can do all kinds of different things. And so often it's the integrity, it's the character, it's the devotion of women toward God that kind of holds things in place where the guys kind of get their bearings once again. But once you lose the men in a culture, and then you lose the women as well, you're in, you're in real trouble at that point. And I think that's what dismayed him here, was this wasn't just men, and yet, uh, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle and moves the whole world, that is women. Uh, the great influence of women in so many areas within a culture, he looks and says, we haven't all only lost the men, we've lost the women. And it dismayed him. And that's an awful thing when that happens within uh, within a culture. And then he said, have you, have you uh, uh, verse 15, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? And turn again, and you'll see even greater abomin abominations than these. And so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Now he's coming in. The temple is the temple. The temple is a building. It's made up of two great rooms. There is the holy place where uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the altar of incense was and the altar of showbread and the menorah and all these kind of things that were uh, there in, in that place that the priests move into on a daily basis. And then on the innermost was a room called the Holy of Holies. What he's talking about here and what's going on here in terms of the inner court of the Lord's house, this is what is going on right outside, uh, outside the temple, right out into the courtyard that, that fronts the temple. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun uh, toward the east. And so here in this holiest area of, uh, of, for worship in the temple there at the entrance of it, 25 priests, leaders, religious leaders among the Jews, I mean, they stood with their uh, backs to the temple in order to worship uh, the rising of the sun, to worship uh, the sun uh, and, and the sun uh, God. 
I mean, this is, it, 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 this is an affront to God that is, it, it, is impossible to put into words. That's why he says, listen, let me show you another abomination. And he doesn't even feel the Lord to kind of elaborate on it. it, it, it it's so stunning that it, it ought to leave everybody stunned. Have you ever, um, just on, a, on an individual level, one human being to another, appear an equal what if you uh, what if you tried to talk to somebody and all they would do is show you their back they wouldn't give you the decency of even allowing you to see their face or to speak to their face that would be such an appalling affront and an insult that one human being could do to another human being. Imagine doing that to God. And I try to get my head around it. I, I can't get my head around uh, eternity. I can't get my head around infinity. I can't get a, uh, my head around the fact that the distance between the Creator and the creation of which I am, that that gap is infinite. That, that's the distance, that's the, the superiority of God to any of us. And for a human being who claims to represent God among God's people, to show that level of disrespect to God, I mean, you are, you're so far out there, it's unbelievable. And this is what they were doing in order to worship the, the, the sun god of the ancient world, but having to turn their back upon the temple and upon the Lord in order to do it. I mean, just really an astonishing affront. And I, th I think it's good, it's good for me, so I'll assume it's good for all of us as well. But just to stop and remember who we have this relationship with. This isn't somebody on TV. This isn't somebody living next door. This isn't even some powerful man or woman in the world. This is God. And again, to realize I'm in relationship with Him. And He has allowed me to enter into a relationship with Him. And He's made Himself vulnerable in that relationship to either receive my worship and my adoration, which He deserves, or to be hurt or to be insulted by treating him in a way that we would never treat another human being. And that's what they were doing. And it does me no harm at all to stop and remember that this is God Almighty that we are in the middle of a relationship with and then yet how how casual they were. And, and Paul, of course, when he writes to the Romans, he brings up the folly of all of this. And here they are worshiping the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And again, this is not the Canaanites, it is not the Philistines, it is not the Edomites, it is not the pagans. It, it is God's people who knew better than that. And to worship the creation in any way, of course, is to stop short of the worship uh, of the, the ultimate, the object that is, is ultimately worthy of my worship. Because if I worship creation, then 
what is greater than creation is the creator who has created the creation. Why would I worship creation when I can worship the creator who is greater? And they knew better, and, and they, were, they were doing it. And, and, and so this is all going on, and the Lord said to them, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Uh, and they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch uh, to their nose. And so nobody knows exactly what the, this uh, ancient kind of uh, image is, but it, it surely speaks of uh, all of these actions that they're doing, and particularly here, the worship of the, the sun god. It is like thumbing their nose at, at, at God. And, you, and here you look at the, these leaders. This is the area of the temple. And they're so careful in their worship of Asherah and their worship of the, the Egyptian deities, their worship of Tammuz, their worship of Ra, the sun, sun god, and they give no thought at all to, uh, to offending God at all. And imagine, I mean, here we are. We've just enjoyed a worship service of, uh, of the portion of it related to song. Wasn't it great just to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? I mean, here we are. We're just simple. We're just simple people. We live in a simple town. This is a simple kind of assembly that, that we're a part of. But what pleases God with what we offered up to Him is that what we said to Him was in spirit and in truth. It, it, it represented a reality within our life uh, to Him. And that's, that's all He wanted. I mean, imagine if you, had, you came to a church and this is what the leadership were in secret. Or this is what the leadership uh, were, whether men or women. Uh, this is what they were engaging in. Or this is what they, you're beginning to indoctrinate uh, a, a group of people who've come to worship God in. I mean, uh, I, would, I would hope everyone in this room would run for the exit and run for their life and find another church. But you know, when it happens slowly, uh, and uh, then amazing things can happen that nobody gets, gets shocked by at all. And so the Lord said, therefore, verse 18, and therefore, that's a reason word, therefore I will also act in my fury, and my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And as Ezekiel comes back from this series of visions and he declares these things to those elders that are sitting in front of him in Babylon, concerned about the future of Jerusalem, once they realize this is how far the corruption has gone uh, in, in terms of the practice of sin and the idolatry and all, their hearts would just absolutely sink and, and to realize, no, there, there is nothing but judgment that... that uh, can uh, be a part of, uh, of their, their future. And, uh, and, and so the, 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 they had uh, just 
you know, they, they, nobody could argue uh, that God, God would be wrong in putting an end to what was going on uh, uh, there. And he asked, the Lord, he asked Ezekiel, is this a trivial thing and, and all related to, to all of this? And of course the answer is, uh, and are they not worthy of judgment? And the answer is absolutely yes. And that would be any, anybody's uh, uh, conclusion. And then he moves on into uh, chapter 9 and with a, a second vision. And then he called out in my hearing, here they are in Jerusalem, and he calls out, the Lord does in, in the hearing of, of Ezekiel with a loud voice, saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near. And then he further commanded them that each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And so six uh, beings are going to come forward. They aren't men, clearly, as we'll see in a moment. These are angelic beings somehow associated with Jerusalem. I do believe because uh, Daniel writes uh, of it, in the book of Daniel, there is a speaking about kind of the, the, the battles that, can, that go on in the spiritual realm that we don't see, that we're unaware of, and uh, that, that goes on between uh, fallen angels, demons, and then angels that are loyal to God, and that great battle that occurs. And, uh, and, and what are sometimes called today territorial spirits, where where you, in a negative sense, are talking about a demonic spirit usually, but, but I do believe that there are, you know, based upon what the Scripture says, that there are angelic beings that have, uh, have been given a part of the world or a city or whatever it might be as, as something that they uh, are involved in God's will and God's purposes related to that city. I'm hesitant, and this was a, a big fad quite a few years ago, went on in Modesto, went on everywhere in the United States as best as I could tell, where people were walking neighborhoods and binding territorial spirits and, and demanding that they identify themselves and all this kind of thing. I, I would personally never go that far. I think the Bible tells us that enough to simply know that this realm exists in this way and then to go on about our business related to other weapons that he has, uh, he has given us. I think that's taking it someplace where we aren't given that kind of instruction. And so here are six angelic beings that are associated with God's purposes for uh, Jerusalem, calls for them to come with a weapon, and suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces to the north. Now these six angels, are, God is going to call upon them in the vision to bring a great judgment against the city of Jerusalem. And they come from the north uh, simply because they're representing the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem that would uh, ultimately occur. And when Babylon invaded, they invaded uh, from the north. And so he gives a picture here of, of a reality that is coming and will be f fulfilled by the, the Babylonians. And ultimately, the six, uh, suddenly, the, uh, the six men uh, came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a battle axe in his hand. And then one among them uh, was clothed with linen, and so he stood out by virtue of this, and he had a writer's inkhorn at his side. He had a little kind of a wooden box, and, and he would have ink in there and some uh, quills in order to write with it and some small pieces of parchment. Uh, the ability to mark, the ability to, 
uh, to write. And so with these, these six uh, comes this man in linen, also an angelic being with a writer's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and they stood beside uh, the bronze altar. Bronze is a, a metal that ty- typifies judgment in the Scriptures. And now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub uh, where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Now we see the progression. We see God saying in the chapter earlier that the sins of the people within Jerusalem are causing Him to be driven from His place uh, in, in the temple and in the Holy of Holies. And now we see the progression occurring uh, here in, in verse 3 that the presence of the Lord that was uh, centered upon the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There were the two uh, cherubim, the angels that were facing one another with their wings forward. And, uh, and, and that was the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And God is declaring uh, here, as, as we see in the vision, that He's now being forced to move out of the Holy of Holies to now the threshold of the temple. He is coming to the doorway of the temple uh, to then uh, to, to, to proceed, uh, to continue his, his departure progressively. Always there is the slowness of his movement out indicates the fact that he's hesitant to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He wants to maintain the place that he is due in, in the life of, of the people of Israel but they keep, uh, he gives a space to repent, but they won't repent. And, and, and so progressively he's being forced out. And then he called uh, to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And, uh, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done uh, uh, within it. And so he says, before we allow the judgment to go forward, he says, I want you to mark uh, those that, have, uh, that are, are sighing and, and, uh, and uh, crying over the abominations, the sins, the condition of Jerusalem here uh, as they find themselves in the, in the middle uh, of, of all of it. And he was to put a mark on them. These people are going to be spared in this judgment. Somehow God's going to supernaturally spare them in Babylon coming upon the city, apparently. And we see here, as, as we see throughout the Bible, when God is going to bring a, 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 a widespread kind of judgment upon people, that, that it, is, it is never indiscriminate. It, it is always His judgment is, is very, very uh, detailed. It's very, very measured, very, very precise, very holy. And we saw it at the time uh, of Noah with the flood in the Scriptures, the destruction of Sodom and, and Gomorrah, the first Passover in, in, in Egypt. There was always an opportunity to do the right thing and those who did the right thing were spared uh, the judgment. And so there is this distinction that he always makes in judgment, and, and, and so he proceeds to do that here. You notice the, the uh, characteristics of the person who is going to be uh, distinguished from everyone else and, and be uh, uh, protected from this judgment. He says that they sigh and they cry over the evil being done all around them in Jerusalem. And, and here they are, they're in Jerusalem. They are too small of a minority now. 
uh, to turn the tide. They're too small of a minority to uh, change the, the progression, the tidal wave of wickedness and idolatry that's happening within the city. They couldn't control that. But the one thing they could control was how they viewed it. They could control whether they would join in that idolatry or whether they would maintain their relationship with God and be as grieved and mourn over the idolatry and, the, and sin in the same way uh, that, that, that he did. They couldn't turn it around, but they could do that. And I think this is a tremendous picture and, and gives anyone hope in any number of environments in, in the world, and not the least, you know, the United States of America. Because I think all of us know what it's like to, to feel and where you look at uh, the, the direction of a nation, the direction uh, of, uh, of the world in, in, is going in terms of sin. And you just feel powerless to change it. You would, you would change it if you could, uh, but, uh, and you oppose all of the decisions that are being made, all of the things that are being legalized, all of the, the sin and the headlong plunge into wickedness. But you have absolutely no power over any of it. Every, the, the nation in the world is, is running headlong toward all of these things. And, and it's good to realize that God notices the, the heart attitude and, and, uh, that is grieved by that kind of, of thing, the privacy of their heart, and, they take, and He takes it into account in, in meeting out His judgment. And when you live in, in a culture, and I think we're, uh, if, if we're not there, we're very nearly there, but I think we're, uh, we're certainly there as a culture in the United States of America, where we see the kind of wick wickedness that has been legalized for a lot of different reasons, and you realize it will take a revival or a work of God for people to turn back and give these things up in terms of the accessibility to sin and, and, and all. And, and, and when you're in that kind of an environment where things are moving so quickly, you, there, the, you can think, what good uh, does it do to live a godly life in the midst of this kind of wickedness, in the midst of this kind of darkness? And we can ask ourselves that question. And this passage answers it for us, and that is, it does a lot of good. If not for the culture, it does a lot of good for God. And it does a lot of good for us because, because God notices that while we are in the culture, we are not of the culture. And He notices that about every single individual. And then when He pours out His judgment, then He is uh, discriminating related uh, to that. It's interesting when He calls there and, uh, and, he, and he tells him uh, in 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 verse, uh, verse 4, and the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, uh, and through the, uh, uh, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within. That word mark is a very, very interesting uh, thing to note as well, because the word God uses to describe the mark that He wants to have applied uh, to these, uh, these saints is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, uh, Ta'u it is. 
and uh, which in, in the early Greek, which is the Greek that would have been in practice at the time of, of Ezekiel, it was represented uh, by a letter that was in the shape of a cross. And, and the same shape that God uh, called to be applied to the doorposts and the lentils of each home related to the establishment of the Passover and the, the redemption out of, of Egypt. And, uh, and here, again, there's going to be protection that is found uh, for those who are under the cross. They're going to be spared the judgment uh, of God. And so it is uh, related to every Christian. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. We have tribulation as Christians in the world. But one thing we never face is the wrath of God. The Bible says repeatedly in the New Testament that we are not appointed under wrath. Uh, Tribulation in the world, opposition from people in the world, all of those things are no fun uh, to go through. Uh, But they are child's play compared to the day when God rises up, whether at the end of the age or in the course of human history, and He rises up in His judgment. And the Bible says that because of our faith in Christ, we are not appointed to His judgment. It's one of the reasons that I don't believe that the church goes through the great tribulation period or the seven-year tribulation period at all, because it is described as being the wrath of the Lamb the wrath of God. We are not appointed under wrath. We have to be removed before that first seal is, is broken on, on the scroll. And, uh, but here is this differentiation, and I think it's, uh, it's exciting to, to realize that even if we find ourselves in whatever culture in the world and look and say, I can't turn this around. What difference can I make? We can be different between us and God, and, and God will notice it. And to the others, the other angels, other than the one with the inkhorn, he said, in my hearing, uh, go after him. He tells these other angels, don't precede him. Don't bring judgment until he's marked. Uh, who, is, who sighs and who cries related to uh, the, the abominations. So go after him through the city and kill. And do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Uh, Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone uh, on whom is the mark. And begin, he said, at my sanctuary. Uh, Peter talks about the fact that uh, judgment begins in the house of God. So God says, bring this judgment and start this judgment and uh, start with the 25 guys that turn their back to me. Uh, right at the threshold of my temple. Start from the temple and begin to work uh, your way out. This is why it's so important that that sometimes, you know, as Christians, we can we can we can compartmentalize in our mind, and and so sometimes you'll hear Christians uh, talk about you know for God to judge the terrible sins of the world and all of these things and. And, uh, and, you know, God, when are you going to bring this to an end? When are you going to stop this? When are you going to come in in your power and your, your holiness? And, uh, but to pray that prayer uh, is important to realize that when He does bring judgment against those things, He will begin among His people. He will begin in the house of God and to make sure that we are not indignant about sins that the world is practicing, but also have a secret place 
uh, in our lives as well. Because He'll judge it just as thoroughly and just as firmly as He finds it, and even more so. He'll begin in the house uh, of, of the Lord. And so begin in my sanctuary, and so they began uh, with the elders who were before the temple. And then He said to them, defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, uh, go out. And they went out and they killed in the city, again representing what the Babylonian uh, army would ultimately do. And so it was that while, I, uh, while they were there killing them, uh, Ezekiel says, I was left alone. And I fell on my face and I cried out and I said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy the remnant of, of Israel in the pouring out of your fury on Jerusalem? Even Ezekiel here now uh, gets a sense for the scope of the problem. As he watches in this vision, these angelic beings go through Jerusalem and he sees the sheer number of people. Uh, how few people have the, the, uh, the ta'u being put on their, uh, on their forehead, being marked as people who, who sighed and cried over the wickedness. And he sheer, sees almost the sheer slaughter of everyone else. And he realizes, and he's concerned now, that there won't be any Jewish remnant at all that will survive it. I mean, that's what, he, that's what he's concerned. He just sees such a, a mowing down of people that he thinks there's not going to be uh, any remnant at all to continue the plan of God through uh, that Jewish bloodline, including Jesus coming into the world as, as Messiah. And then he, that is the Lord, said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed. Uh, Ezekiel, don't blame me. Don't blame me. The reason the bodies and the judgment and the, and the, uh, the destruction that the Babylonians will, will bring has nothing to do with me. It is because the, the land is full of uh, bloodshed. The violence that the Jews were uh, uh, committing against the righteous and the slaughter of, uh, of the righteous and so forth. And the city is full of perversity, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. And as for me, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Uh, Ezekiel, this is not a beef you have with me. This is simply justice that's being meted out in the light of the lives uh, that, that they are living. Anytime the holiness of God comes into contact with sin and perversity, it has to take the form of judgment. Otherwise, if we wanted it some other way, uh, do we want perversity and sin the way that the Jews were practicing it? Would we want that to prevail and God's holiness to be lost? Or would we rather that God remains holy and that a people responsible for the decisions that they've made and deserving of the judgment that God warned them ahead of time that they would uh, incur, that, that they would be the ones who would be forced to change? And I can't speak for anyone else, but I say, let God be holy and ever holy, always holy. I have no interest in Him becoming like me 
or, or becoming something unholy because enough people, even among his own people, clamoring that he's too severe in guarding his reputation and, and exercising his holiness. Uh, let, let him remain holy above all else. And just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn in his side reported back and he said, I have done as you commanded me. This would have been a great relief to uh, Ezekiel because when he came back and he reported to the Lord, I have done what you've said, I have put the mark on each of these people, it allowed Ezekiel to realize that there was a remnant and that a remnant would survive this great uh, invasion and, and uh, God's chastening in the form of, of this invasion uh, by the Babylonians. And I looked and there was the, in, in the firmament, and now as, as we come here into chapter 10, and, and I'll almost uh, read it because it's a, a recapping uh, of some things, but it continues the description of God's, uh, the departure of His glory from the temple and Jerusalem. And I looked and there, uh, as, as he continues to see now a new vision that he'll communicate to the elders in, in, uh, in Babylon. And I looked and there was in the firmament that was uh, above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So again he sees that vision that he saw in chapter 1 and this firmament is the platform upon which uh, the throne of God and the glory of God is on and the angelic beings and the wheels are down below as we saw in chapter 1. He sees this uh, all over again. And then the Lord spoke to the man who was clothed in the linen, the, the angel with the inkhorn, and he said, Go in among the wheels uh, under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from among uh, the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And these coals being spread over the city and the vision represented, the, again, the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. It's interesting that not only were the Babylonians come from the north, uh, but they would destroy the city by fire. And, and so the Lord is, is declaring. And, uh, and he went in, as I watched, Jeremiah, Ezekiel said. And now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of uh, the, the, the temple. And the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And so now he, the Lord is beginning to depart from the temple in His glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. And then it happened uh, when He commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that He went in and He stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out uh, his hand from among the cherubim uh, to the fire that was among the cherubim, and he took the coals uh, from there, put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and, and went out. And, and, uh, and the, the uh, intimation is that he spread the coals of fire out and the vision over the, uh, over the city, even as that fiery judgment would come at the hands of the Babylonians and the city and the cherubim. Uh, 
appeared to have the form of an angel of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, uh, there were four wheels by the cherubim, and one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by the, uh, each other cherub, uh, and uh, the wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And now, if you've been with us from chapter 1, he now begins to speak about the fact that I'm now seeing these same uh, angels again. I'm seeing the same uh, throne uh, of the glory of God and, and the same chariot carrying His glory. He's talking about uh, the vision that, that he re-sees. And, uh, and you have to f forgive him for that. I mean, we don't need to forgive Ezekiel for anything, but um, when, when you've seen something like that, I mean, you're going to retell that story. I mean, you're going to retell that description. So he sees them again, and he, and he doesn't describe them with the same depth, uh, but he still is, is in awe of, 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 of these angels associated with the glory of God as he was in the beginning. And, uh, and verse 11, when they went, they went toward any of their four directions. And they did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. And they did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. If this is the first time you're hearing it, I'm not going to take the time to describe it. Go back and listen to chapter 1 and where I made it as confusing as I ever could uh, tonight. Uh, but there's imagery in, in, in all of this. And as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing wheels. And each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face the face of a man, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were uh, lifted up and this uh, was the living creature I saw by the river Chabar. And so he references this back to chapter 1. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. Then the cherubim stood uh, still, the wheel, when the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still, and when one was lifted up, the other lifted himself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. And then here it is, and then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple uh, and, and stood over the cherubim. And so here is this formal departure of the glory of God from the area of the temple. And the cherubim then lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of uh, the God of Israel was above them. And so here's the progression. God is being driven from His place in the temple uh, by the actions and the deeds of, of His people. He is forced to move from the Holy of Holies to the threshold, to the doorway of the temple that leads out to the courtyard as a first step. And now He departs from the temple altogether, and He goes now to the east gate associated with uh, the temple kind of uh, compound or 
the series of buildings. Those of you who have been to Israel, you're familiar with the East Gate. It's the gate that leads to the Kidron Valley. And you're, if you're up on the Kidron Valley, you look over upon the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, and the East Gate is the one that you see uh, right there on the east side of the city. And so now the Lord leaves the temple formally, and, and, and He, he, he uh, uh, hesitates here for, for some period of time at that east gate before, as we'll see in chapter 11, uh, Lord willing, next week, He departs uh, altogether. And so here is, is the progression. I mean, it's just like, you, you know, us, many of you have been with us as we've studied all the way from Genesis and talking about the temple and the building of the temple and the instruments and what the furnishings represented and the holiness of God. And you know Israel's history when everything was right, when it wasn't like uh, this, when it was the way it was supposed to be and how beautiful it was and, and, uh, and how wonderful it was for the holiness of God to be respected and for Him to have the place that only He deserves in any human life and deserved within the nation. The nation owed its existence to Him. And then to realize that what it would take on the part of people to drive Him from that place. But, but they did it. And this is the living creature I saw under the, the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew that they were cherubim, angelic beings. And each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward, again talking about the motion of that particular chariot uh, of, of the glory of God. Well, we'll stop there tonight and uh, come to concluding this particular section uh, in, in uh, looking at chapter 11 uh, next time we're together and, uh, uh, and then really having kind of the full weight of it uh, kind of uh, impact us. I, I do think that this speaks for sure to, um, you know, to just... Somehow, you know, as I think we mentioned it last time we were together and looking at Ezekiel, the, the old saying that um, what a person really is, uh, is the person we are in the dark and the person that we are when we're alone. And we look at this and say, well, you know, okay, well, he's leaving and they're driven him out and all of this, and they're going to pay an awful price uh, for this. What does it have to do with us? Well, the Bible teaches that today we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as Christians. And we have the capacity, if we maintain willfully, deliberately within our lives, we have the capacity to, uh, to grieve the Holy Spirit and ultimately to quench him. Uh, not talking about salvation, but talking about sanctification and the fullness of His presence and His working within our life. And, and we can do the same thing that, that Israel did here, that Jerusalem did, and to begin to, to engage in these kind of things. Begin to engage in the worship of sexual immorality, which we have such access to today within our culture. 
and, uh, or uh, to begin to worship all of the things uh, that we once worshipped before we became Christians. And God sanctified us, cleansed our life, made us into a new creation. And now in the darkness uh, of our life, we're brick by brick rebuilding that life and bringing all of those things back into our lives. Or the worship of uh, Tammuz, or the worship of the creation. Again, I think about how many people that call themselves uh, Christians, and they don't even fellowship, not even talking about serving in a church, or uh, giving their life away, or operating in their gifting. They, they don't even, it, it isn't, it, they, they're so far from God, that, and, and there's such a nothing going on between them and God, that they won't even, uh, they won't even assemble together with the saints to worship God. How far out there are is a person like that? And yet we know we can all take individual steps that ultimately lead us into such a place. But it's such an affront. It is so far away. And then what happens is we grieve the Holy Spirit and ultimately quench the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is driven out of our lives from His fullness. And that's a terrible thing to happen. To, to an individual life. And under the, the weight, the sobriety of the passage that we're looking at tonight, this is not a guilt got you. This is not trying to be heavy, uh, just to be heavy. But to look at it and say, is this in the privacy of my life? Is, is you know, religion was thriving at this time. Outward religion. And all of this was going on toward God, but in the privacy of lives, it had become this, and God said, I'm leaving. I won't bless it. I won't be a part of it. And the interesting thing about that is that that can happen to a church. There's a critical mass that occurs that where a, a, a certain portion of the congregation can keep up appearances and, and can... Uh, but in the privacy of their own lives, all of this other thing kind of going on. And then finally there's a tipping point where God comes and looks at that church and says, I can't, go, I can't be there. I can't be there in my fullness. I can't be there in my blessing. I can't inhabit their praises. I know what goes on elsewhere, which was the purpose of the vision to, uh, to communicate to the elders in in, in uh, Babylon who couldn't, uh, could hardly believe this when the report would come to them. And my point related to, to all of this is, is to realize that that kind of a thing can happen and to allow this passage like this to really make us search related to our lives and to realize it doesn't just affect me, but it affects the body of Christ. It affects the church that I attend, potentially, uh, potentially so. I don't think we're anywhere near that as a church, but I don't know. Uh, I know the privacy of my own life. I don't know the privacy of anyone else's. But I think um, when you, you know, to, to get where this kind of a situation is at, you have leadership that are long gone. It's a total farce what's going on in church services in terms of uh, what's being presented and, and what people are in privacy and then the people uh, following after that. But I think it is good to, to realize that when we worship God in spirit and in truth and song the way that we have tonight and the way that we do all through the different meetings that occur 
uh, here at the church in the course of the week, and then, and then the Sunday morning and the Sunday night, um, that this is about God. This is about this being His place, that He's the star of the show. He's the attraction. It's, it's all for Him, and it's all about Him. And, and we don't want to come to a place where it's ruined for Him, and He can't come and freely participate in the way that He wants and in the way that we need Him uh, to do so. Otherwise, a church can wake up. I don't think it happens overnight, but it can happen over a period of time, and everyone just kind of looks at one another and says, where'd He go? Where did God go in that church? I don't sense Him honoring His Word. I don't sense Him inhabiting our praises. It's just dead. And so often the case behind that can be that that critical, the very progression that happened here among the children of Israel can easily happen in the body of Christ as well. And, and to, to allow this passage to uh, cause us to, to, to really look strongly at these things and, and to whatever needs to be surrendered in our lives tonight and uh, to say that my life is fully yours. Wherever there's hypocrisy, whatever kind of disparity there is between who I am at church and how I represent myself in spiritual environments and what I actually am, God, I don't want to leave this place until I repent of that and until there's no inconsistency in that at, at all. And that's the place of safety and the place of salvation. And the children of Israel were unwilling to, uh, to do it. Um, and, and so the lesson is before us, a, a horrible, horrible uh, thing to read about and, and to witness. And we certainly want to steer clear of it. Let's stand together now. The worship team would come up and, and close us.